This month on Energy Voices, we've got a a special treat for all of our listeners as we're going to have an episode that's guest produced by Daniel Cunningham. Uh, Daniel recently won the Future Power Conference to uh, the Future Power Contest to attend the Electric Power Conference in New Orleans. This was a contest that we ran at Student Energy to try to get youth more engaged on the future of power and some of the really interesting aspects that are coming to our electricity industry. And Daniel expressed uh, a particular interest in electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, vehicles and the really rapid transformation that's coming to both of these industries and so uh, after chatting a few times um, Daniel expressed that he'd be very interested in uh, taking on production of an episode of Energy Voices that's really explicitly uh, designed around exploring sort of the current moderate term and future term of electric and autonomous vehicles. So uh, I wanted to have Daniel into the studio just to explain a little bit about why this is a subject that's so interesting to him and and why he thinks that youth from around the world uh, should be really focused on these topics. So uh, first off, welcome to the studio, Daniel, and thanks for making my job easier this month. No, hey, thank you. It's, uh, It's been a real, real pleasure and hopefully I can put out a good episode for everyone. And so to frame up the context for the next hour of programming here, uh, what is it that gets you so fired up about uh, electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, and, and, and the future of power and electricity in our world? Well, so I sort of started out as a getting interested in the electricity business, uh, worked for a local utility company, and then for an international consulting company. And that sort of wet my beak into the... Um, into the electricity industry. And before that, I was a, a real sort of car guy. Uh, growing up, I, I used to shout out the name of every passing vehicle. Um, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure your parents love that. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it earned me a lot of licks from my older brothers. Um, but what I found interesting is that I entered the electricity business sort of right at the time when electric vehicles were becoming interesting. Um, Tesla had really sort of started to cement itself as a real car company. Um, And so I obviously became quite interested in Tesla. And then as I started to explore electric vehicles as a gearhead, I really realized that um, there's there's a lot that's driving electric vehicles um, outside of just wanting to do it for uh, sustainability. they seem to be significantly better as, um, as, as fast cars. They've got more application um, towing things because they've sort of got instantaneous torque. Then I started looking into how much they cost to run and found that, in fact, electric vehicles are significantly cheaper to run. And throughout this entire process, I've really started to think about, you know, what, what's going to happen as we start... Uh, transitioning more and more to electric vehicles. Um, And in that process, uh, I really started to explore autonomous vehicles. And I've argued many times with friends and family about the merits of electric vehicles against internal combustion vehicles. And uh, the, the, I think the, the, the key driver that's going to push a transition that's faster than anyone is anticipating is autonomous vehicles. Uh, and, and the primary reason for that is I think that autonomous vehicles are going to be uh, primarily owned in fleets by companies like Uber or, 
Google or car sharing companies like Cardigo by Daimler. Um, and when they go autonomous, the transition will sort of happen in a couple of years. Uh, transition to electric, that is. And and just one important point for our listeners, especially any of our listeners that are based in Alberta, we are a, a fossil fuel jurisdiction, but we actually have some of the leading usages and applications of autonomous vehicles. So for, for context for our listeners, uh, Suncor is one of the first adopters in the world of autonomous haul truck technology in their oil sands mines. Uh, and throughout the province, there's uh, agricultural producers who are using autonomous vehicles um, within their fields to enable them to increase the the sort of effective capacity of the the equipment that they've got out in the field. So just sort, sort of interjecting there that I don't think that this is a subject that's really far away. I think we're, we've already seen the adoption of some of these technologies in some of the use cases that you're already talking about. Right. And so with that, I've, I, I think it's, it's really important for us to start thinking about what we're going to do when the, when the transition happens inevitably and how we can start to respond to it. And for me, as someone who's just sort of entering the workforce, I find this to be incredibly exciting. Uh, it's a unique opportunity where, you know, me at 25, I've, I can carve out a niche that a lot of people don't have at the intersection of transportation and energy consumption or electricity generation. Yeah. And so maybe uh, we don't want to spoil all the goodies that are contained within in the show uh, in this intro piece, but um, maybe give us a quick background on on what we can expect from, from the show or what are some of the, the big themes that you want to cover over the next hour? Yeah. So really, I wanted to look at Firstly, um, whether or not electric vehicles are, in fact, going to be uh, as disruptive as, as I initially thought. Um, and moving forward from that, um, I think it's important, if they are going to be disruptive, um, to determine whether or not they're going to be disruptive as autonomous vehicles or as uh, sort of a, a more consumer transition. Um, and then building on that, once we make the transition, um, there's going to be a change in the energy system that produces, uh, obviously, the energy for those vehicles. So I really wanted to dive deep into what it's going to look like from an electricity uh, utility perspective if this transition does, in fact, happen. Perfect. Okay, well, we're uh, we're excited to have you take over the reins for the show, and uh, we'll kick things off uh, next with uh, our usual This Month in Energy, and then uh, the everything gets tossed over to Daniel's court to take us through uh, some really cool concepts on electric and autonomous vehicles. Awesome. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Hey there, Enternerds. It's Kaylee Taylor, co-founder of Student Energy here, and it's This Month in Energy, the segment of the show where we take you through the big headlines of energy this month. Here's what's happening in June 2016. Everyone is talking about Brexit. Britain's departure from the EU will force broad changes to the bloc's energy and climate policies and remove a crucial ally for Central Europeans who face mounting pressure from Russia for gas supplies but it will also give London more freedom to pursue future nuclear projects. 
The latest report from the International Renewable Energy Agency, IRENA, found the renewable energy industry employs a total of 9.4 million people around the world, excluding large hydropower, which counts for 1.3 million direct jobs worldwide. Today, the renewables sector employs more than 8.1 million people, a rise of 5% compared to 7.7 million last year. An oil dip has forced Brazil to declare financial disaster before the Olympic Games. The acting governor of Rio de Janeiro has declared the disaster due to dropping oil royalties in an effort to gain more leeway to manage the state's scarce resources less than two months before Brazil is set to host the Olympic Games. Bloomberg New Energy Finance released their 2016 New Energy Outlook this month, and it looks bright for low-carbon energy. The big message? Cheaper coal and cheaper gas will not derail the transformation and decarbonization of the world's power systems. By 2040, zero-emissions energy sources will make up 60% of installed capacity. Wind and solar will account for 64% of the 8.6 terawatts of new power-generating capacity added worldwide over the next 25 years, and for almost 60% of the $11.4 trillion invested. Patricia Espinoza, the Mexican diplomat, has been confirmed as the new head of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change to replace outgoing UNFCCC chief Christiana Figueres. The world's first 24-7 power plant in Tonopah, Nevada, is providing clean, green solar energy to 75,000 homes, even when the sun isn't shining. The technology is referred to as CSP, concentrated solar power, and uses more than 10,000 movable mirrors, or heliostats, to reflect solar energy to a central 640-foot tower that heats up salt to 1,050 degrees Fahrenheit. This shows great promise for solar being able to provide power all night long. The German government is considering new changes to its famous Energiewende policy, including a potential new energy tax system. The German Ministry of Finance wants clean energy consumers to pay taxes of $0.02 cents per kilowatt hour consumed from their own solar installations. The German Solar Industry Association warns that this new regulation might have very heavy consequences for the future of the industry in the country. Morocco has been chosen to participate in a project to spread the use of green technologies in farming and food processing. The project launched in 2015 as a joint initiative between the Food and Agriculture Organization, the EBRD, and the International Energy Agency to promote the use of green technologies in farming. It's primarily meant for countries in southern Mediterranean and eastern Europe. France became the first industrial nation to ratify the Paris Climate Accord. Signing is good, ratifying is better, said French President Francois Hollande. He noted that the deal will only come into force if at least 55 countries responsible for at least 55% of global greenhouse gas emissions ratify it. The European Union announced 10 million euros in funding to finance Algeria's renewable energy and energy efficiency programs. The financing proposal still needs approval from the European Commission. The potential for renewable energy development in Africa is experiencing increased attention lately as investors and world leaders seek a new clean energy frontier. The continent could become a goldmine for renewable energy due to its abundant solar and wind resources. But the roadblocks to renewable energy worldwide are amplified throughout the troubled regions of Africa. Financial resources are thin and infrastructure is often unreliable. 
Norway's parliament has agreed on a goal to cut the country's net greenhouse gas emissions to zero by 2030, moving forward their original target by 20 years. To achieve carbon neutrality on this tight time frame, oil and gas producing Norway will have to lower its carbon output or purchase carbon credits to offset its emissions. Dubai is planning to build the largest plant to convert waste to energy in the Middle East, totaling $545 million. This plant will be the first of four projects to produce green energy and forms part of the city's plan to reduce landfill usage by 75% by 2021 while protecting the environment from methane gas emitted by landfills. And that's This Month in Energy. The first interview in our episode on the future of transportation is with Gary Holden. Gary Holden is the former CEO of NMAX and is the current CEO of Pulse Energy in New Zealand. Daniel's going to talk to him about some of the really unique ways that electric vehicles can be of significant benefit to utilities. Hi, Gary, and thank you for joining us uh, here today. Um, I guess we'll, we'll start by just asking you, uh, to, to tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your experiences. Well, thanks for having me, first of all. And uh, uh, I guess um, I'm, I'm here because of the experience I've had in the electricity business over 30 years. Um, I've had the opportunity to develop uh, gas-fired power plants and wind farms and solar projects, and, uh, and I manage the coal utility assets for Transalta for a number of years. Um, but maybe uh, maybe the most relevant uh, piece of experience that, that will come to play in our discussion today is the, um, the time I spent uh, in market design down in, down in the country of New Zealand back in the 1990s when we deregulated the country and, and put in a set of rules there that um, were in anticipation of technology like electric vehicles and solar power and and uh, innovative uh, energy efficiency devices that uh, that experience played well when I came back to Alberta and and running the um, the transalta generation assets when we ushered in deregulation into Alberta and um, maybe more re- more recently which is interesting is um, I'm running a utility company in New Zealand that um, is uh, coming up with innovative time-of-use products for consumers so that solar power and electric vehicles and other other technologies can integrate well into into the grid uh, going forward. Now, I've, I've heard that um, you used to be somewhat of a, a, a petrol head, as you'd say, in New Zealand, um, and, and today you've sort of made the switch to electric vehicles and i think that that you know from a from an electricity person's perspective an electricity geek's perspective uh, can you tell us sort of some of the reasons why you've made the switch to to electric vehicles well <laughs> yeah certainly uh i i've um, i've love i love cars and i love uh i love the uh the feeling of driving cars fast and and to spend a bit of time on the track and so so it does seem a bit odd, um, but the other part of my life, uh, it, it, thinking about electricity and how it plays in the bigger picture, um, has, um, has sort of brought those two worlds together for me. And 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 I'm just I'm just blown away by the the kinds of uh, electric cars that are 
that are here in terms of their speed and performance and and really excited about what uh, speed and performance will look like when once um, electricity is integrated into a regular sports car and and in a regular car for for day-to-day living um, this the the torque of an electric motor and the uh, the ability for the energy in a car to be converted at such high rates um, with regenerative braking and all of the other technologies, uh, it's uh, it's looking like uh, maybe the next 20 years is going to be just as exciting in the automotive world as, as any time period uh, in history. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very interesting. I'm a bit of a car guy myself, so I'm excited to see where things end up. Um, now, as part of the show, we've been really looking into um, what is driving the sort of consumer and manufacturing demands for electric vehicles. Uh, but the adoption of electric vehicles is going to have a, a serious impact on the way that um, electricity companies and electric utilities operate. Uh, and if, especially if that transition happens rapidly, it could really stress our electricity system. Um, so, I'd like to get your opinion on how well equipped you think most electric utilities are um, to to adapt to a rapid transition in electric vehicles. That's a very good question. I I know there's there's a number of utility folks that um, have sent out a bit of a wave of concern on this front, but from my point of view, and I think it's quite logical uh, to analyze it this way. Um, you know, essentially, we built an electricity grid to deal with daytime demand. And so all of the transmission wires and all of the distribution wires and all the generating plants and all the peaking plants were designed to deliver electricity reliably uh, sort of between 4 p.m. and 10 p.m. in the middle of winter in Canada and uh, other countries. You know, obviously, if you go to Arizona, it's the middle of summer that that, that uh, demand peaks. But but what that does is it leaves this entire infrastructure almost vacant during the nighttime. And so you've got, you've got all these assets sitting around doing nothing in the middle of the night, which is the absolute perfect time to be plugging in your electric car. So, so I, I take the view that electric cars uh, are nowhere near uh, a burden on the system. In fact, because they'll be drawing electricity when no one else is using the system, Generally speaking, it uh, it actually improves the efficiency of the network, and uh, more revenue will come into the utilities at night, which will allow the uh, transmission and distribution charges to actually fall. So, so uh, there is, in terms of planning a grid, there is no greater opportunity than to get a really big demand that comes at a time when the grid is empty. Wow, it's interesting, um, and you just sort of mentioned. The, the grid planning aspect of things. Um, and then I think that leads into the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about quite nicely, which is if you were to create the sort of optimal electricity system uh, 20 years down the road to deal with a society that operates primarily or even exclusively on electrically powered vehicles, um, what, what would you, what would that, what would that, system look like? Well, it's, it, it's a, that's another great question. I think the, um, the, the way to think about 
cars is we've had them around for about 100 years, and we've used gasoline to power them mostly. And um, to, to answer a question that a, that a fellow asked me a few weeks ago, I, I did a bit of a calculation and, and noted that since we've started using electric cars, we've, been u- we've used about $500 trillion worth of energy in those cars. And then if you if you then look forward a hundred years, we're, we're at least going to use another five hundred trillion dollars in energy, and so it's a very valid question to f- try to figure out where that's going to come from. Um, there's there's a you know I won't get into the whole uh, discussion of do we have enough oil, but given that electricity into a car is roughly six times cheaper than oil into a car it makes a lot of sense that it'll probably be a lot of electricity. And so so then the follow-up question has to be, well, where's that electricity coming from? And um, the only source known to man that's seemingly infinite is solar power. And so, so one way to think about this whole picture is the future is vastly short solar power. And if, if, if people chasing a six-times economic advantage in an electric car want to charge their car, then you can imagine a whole lot of that charging will come from solar power. And then finally, um, what does the grid actually look like in the future? Well, it's probably all day long we're, uh, we're using electricity from solar power and wind, and um, the, the current gas plants uh, will fill in on cloudy days, and the current gas plants um, and maybe even more gas plants that replace uh, retiring coal plants will um, run at night, and um, we'll use we'll use less uh, we'll produce less carbon, of course, because there's so much wind and solar in the mix. Um, and then the uh, the nighttime electricity, of course, is uh, is uh, going into electric cars. So. One of the things that you've you've mentioned is is the sort of focus towards solar energy and then and gas, and you've kind of started to do uh, what I was going to ask you next, and that's to you know sort of move backwards from there, uh, the the point twenty years out, and try and figure out what steps we can be taking. I mean, we're an audience, a global audience of. Uh, young energy nerds who are looking for ways that we can have an impact. So what are some of the things that we can be looking to do um, to realize that sort of optimal 20-year future that you've just spoken about? Well, I think um, that the most, the most powerful and most obvious thing is to, is to send pricing signals that, that reflect this day-night phenomenon. Um, we're doing this now in New Zealand, where the daytime price is four, four or five times higher than the uh, the nighttime price. This is uh, this is to reflect the cost of transmission and distribution build out, which, as I mentioned earlier, is is primarily to serve the daytime peak. Um, there's even greater slices. You could have an evening price that was even higher than the daytime price. But generally speaking, getting a a price signal to consumers that they could understand that says the daytime price is higher than the nighttime price. And the, and the reason that's so important is if you have hundreds of thousands of electric cars around, you want to be sure that the consumer knows that if they're going to fill their electric car, they should use the cheap price. 
the nighttime price. And so getting the signal out there is, is um, probably the simplest and, and most important thing to do. You, you, people are finding that these price signals that are time differentiated uh, are having a miraculous effect on, on all of these technologies. Uh, the daytime price being higher makes solar power more economic, and the evening price being maybe even higher than that um, makes uh, the conversion to LED lights economic. And, of course, then the nighttime price is there to fill your cars cheaply. So so uh, the most powerful thing is to get some time-differentiated pricing. It also, it also is showing policymakers that you don't, need, you don't need to then fall back on things like carbon tax. You can... You can use these price signals to get the outcome you want without taxing consumers uh, unnecessarily. So, so it's really a perfect, almost a panacea type solution. It does require uh, smart meters. It does require some technology in the home that allows the end users to uh, read and see those signals. But you know, the what we're seeing in New Zealand is there's new apps being developed every day. Those price signals are. Uh, are well known and visible, and in the next twenty years, uh, we'll see re- electricity retailers sell power on a on an hourly basis. It's very interesting. So it's it's not really a, a single thing. It's sort of a combination of regulatory changes, uh, technology improvements, and really giving letting people see and educating people on on what power costs at a at any given time in a day. Yeah, exactly. And, and just relying on the basic fundamental economic principle that if you tell someone a price, they'll make a good decision you know, based on what they learn from that price. And um, and electric cars, uh, you know, I, I fill my car in New Zealand here. Um, I can do about 10,000 kilometers for 100 bucks. And uh, when consumers start to see the possibility of driving 10,000 kilometers for a hundred bucks, not only will they want a smart meter to tell them, you know, what the price is so they don't pay too much, but they'll, uh, they'll immediately be converting to an electric car. That's very interesting. Um, now the, the sort of final question that I really wanted to pose, uh, is related to one of the common arguments that I hear against, uh, electric vehicles, and it's that while they might not have tailpipe emissions, uh, the production of electricity going into the batteries often does. Um, now, we've, again, sort of touched on this in talking about using gas plants at nighttime to fuel the electric vehicles. Uh, but can you sort of explain a little bit why electric vehicles are or and or will be uh, a more sustainable me- means of transportation uh, than internal combustion engines? Well, the first part of that answer has got to be um, if your policies are to add power generation that's wind, solar, and and natural gas, and hopefully there's some some cogeneration attached to that natural gas. If your policy is to promote those three technologies and and the addition of those power plants is serving the new demand, and the new demand are electric cars, then at a high level, the electric cars are really getting filled with solar, wind, and cogeneration plants. So, so the, the fact that the grid has, say, coal in it is irrelevant because that coal generation was really there 
to serve demand that already existed. So you have to look at it on an incremental or marginal basis to be to be sort of intellectually honest about it. But the second part of the answer is really these electric cars are, are amazingly efficient. You know, an internal combustion car is 28% efficient. An electric car is 90% efficient, and it has regenerative braking. So, so in fact, electric cars, if you look at it a certain way, are more than 100% efficient because so much of the electricity that you use going up a hill, you grab back going downhill. So, so it's 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 vastly more efficient, and and you know that's why I can get a you know I I've got the BMW i3 now, and and I I can go ten thousand kilometers for a hundred bucks, mostly because I'm buying super cheap nighttime power, and I've got a car that that um, is pretty much a hundred percent efficient once that power is jammed into the battery. Um, putting it to the wheels is uh, almost a perfect process, and this is the beginning of this evolution. The, these cars are, are you know, we're talking about now generation two. Um, imagine what generation ten looks like when uh, when all of these regenerative systems start to become even better, and um, you know, we can actually go to work in an autonomous car, which. Uh, you can bet when you program an autonomous car, there's not a single drop of energy used that isn't necessary. So, so the, uh, the the argument that that somehow electric cars are really not as efficient as they uh, they they are held out to be is, is quite a false argument. In fact, it's up the gap between internal combustion cars and uh, electric cars is, is going to get bigger. Well, thank you, thank you for the insight. Um, I, I get the feeling that you're pretty excited about the future of the electricity business, at least in where you are in Zealand, uh, with the potential of a transition to electric vehicles. So um, it seems, sounds like it's a very exciting time for you right now. Yeah, it is. I, you know, I, I, um, one of the great things about this conversation and a lot of the conversations that that I get into as an utility executive these days is we we we're seeing the economic decisions are actually also environmental decisions. There's no there's no need anymore to to um, build policy around purely a global warming concern. You don't even have to have a global warming concern to make good economic decisions these days because. The uh, the best technologies are actually the um, uh, best technologies from a global warming perspective are also the best technologies from a pure economic perspective. So it's so it's very exciting to actually move to a place where the technology is driving the decision making. Well, I I share that sentiment uh, and that excitement for the for the future. So good. All right. With that, I'd like to say thank you, and um, I hope that, uh, well, I'd like to say thank you, and you've given us some, some great insights here. Thanks, Gary. All right. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No problem. Bye-bye. Next up on the Future of Transportation episode, we're going to dive into a look at autonomous vehicles and a truly unique business called Local Motors that is revolutionizing engineering, manufacturing, and autonomous vehicles through their newly launched Ollie. 
So I guess firstly, uh, if you could just sort of tell our global audience a little bit about what your role is at Local Motors, um, maybe currently and, and what you've been involved with uh, in the past. Um, yeah, so I'm the product manager for Ollie, our self-driving vehicle. Um, and basically, a product manager's role uh, is to be the conduit between the customer and engineering. So you really represent the customer's voice. Uh, you collect data and feedback and put together a business case for the product you're creating, um, what it should include, um, what it should cost, so a lot of different specifications. And then you work with engineering to figure out what's possible within your budgetary and time constraints. Um, so you so you end up creating something that the market actually has a need for. You know, you you attempt to solve a, an actual problem. Um, so that's what I've that's what I've been working on lately. Uh, I've been with Local Motors for a little over two years now. Um, I've worked on another product that we don't currently manufacture anymore. It's called, it was a Verado Drift Trike, a really fun kind of novelty electric tricycle for adults, um, a total blast, and you'll still see them out there, I'm sure. Um, but then now moving into Ollie has been kind of the main focus. Very cool. So one one follow-up to that is, um, what, have you always been interested in electric vehicles or autonomous vehicles, or sort of what drew you into that? Um, well, I've always been interested in just vehicles in general. Um, I grew up with a group of friends that were totally into cars. Um, throughout high school, we all drove classic cars. So I've owned a 61 Cadillac, a 54 Oldsmobile, a 62 Corvair. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting things. I've had, I've had nearly 20 cars at this point in my life, so that's always been a huge interest. Um, but then also sustainability has also been a huge interest. I um, graduated with my Bachelor's of Science in Sustainability in Arizona here, and that's always been really important to me too. So kind of combining the two worlds has been incredibly rewarding and fun and fascinating. So that's kind of how I got here. Wow, that's um, that's awesome. So Local Motors has sort of quite a wide variety of vehicles that you guys have done in the past from sort of dune racers to the electric trike like you've said to uh pizza delivery vehicles um and now you're really uh, working with this ollie project uh what what do you think is the future of of transport and vehicles um from the local motors perspective um yeah so i think well first of all local motors what we specialize in is scope and innovation. So the reason that we appear to have been involved in so many disparate projects is because we really focus on challenging the norm and figuring out new, better ways to do things. Um, so creating locally relevant vehicles was just one of those early goals. And because we got so heavy into advanced manufacturing, uh, things have kind of ballooned, and all of these other opportunities have opened up for us. Um, but, I mean, as far as Ollie goes and a few of the other things we're working on right now, I think the future of transportation is really about automation, 
um, vehicle to everything, communica- communication, um, cognitive computing will play a huge role in machine learning. Um, we're working with IBM Watson right now to to uh, develop that platform for our vehicles. Um, I mean, yeah, there, it, everything is just going to get smarter, really. Um, the utilization rate of vehicles should go up. I think that's going to be wildly important for relieving congestion, pollution, um, making business models more profitable, because right now um, the the economies of personally owned vehicles is it's, it's just clearly not sustainable. I mean, vehicles are used for maybe 5% of their life. The other 95%, they, they, they're parked. They're in a parking lot. They're not, they're sitting idle. They're doing exactly what they were not made to do. Um, and public transit systems are rarely profitable. I don't think any in the U.S. are really profitable. Um, some in Asia get pretty close. Um, and might might actually succeed in that, but it's it's very rare. So we kind of want to take out the complexity of vehicles. Um, we want to make them accessible, affordable, comfortable, uh, safer, of course. Hence, you know, all the research into automation and communication. Um, and so I think that's kind of where things are moving. You'll you'll probably see less personally owned vehicles in the future and uh, and more shared automated transportation and it'll be a, a really multimodal network you know you won't you may not take one vehicle to and from your destinations depending on distance you might take a couple of vehicles but it'll be much more efficient because of um, the infrastructure that we've laid so I think that's kind of where things are headed. Awesome. Um, one of one of the things that you just mentioned regarding the features of, of what your the vehicles that you guys are working on, you know, getting mm-hmm. safer, getting uh, being cheap, uh, getting to be more uh, ec- economic. Um, sorry, in, environmental. With with those features in mind, uh, why did you choose uh, electric generate or electric power uh, for the Ollie? Um, I I think it's no secret that our gasoline consumption is unsustainable. Uh, I know you guys are in Canada, but I mean you you do produce a lot in tar sands, and I, that's you know not. I think it's frowned upon in many circles and in, and in politics. Um, but the U.S. consumes the bulk of all oil produced, and it's not a good thing. Emissions are steadily rising. Um, there's clear effects of this. It's not really up for debate anymore. Um, so just moving to a more sustainable fuel source, that can be produced domestically and eventually from renewables is really what we're going to have to do. Um, it's, I mean, it's just the next step of innovation, but it's also the, the responsible thing to start investing in. Um, now, I think, I'm sorry, go ahead. Have, have, you, have, have you found in that process that, um, in the process of making the Ollie with the goal I mean, primarily of sustainability. Have you found that there are 
un, unexpected advantages from the electric uh, drivetrain being, uh, I mean, obviously the, the advantages of uh, having the battery pack all lower down in the Ollie that frees up a lot of space. And if anyone wants to look at the Ollie, you can see that that vehicle wouldn't be constructed uh, or wouldn't be possible to be constructed uh, as a uh, an internal combustion power plant. Um, so right. can you can you talk a little bit about what sort of engineering advantages the electric motors have? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the Ollie was clearly designed to be an electric vehicle. It was in no way ever going to be a, a, a gasoline or diesel vehicle. Um, but electric motors are, I mean, they're easier to maintain. They're, of course, more environmentally friendly. They're quieter. There's less parts. So that reduces the complexity. Um, in comparison to buying fuel, you, you have lower fuel costs because electricity is cheaper. Um, I mentioned earlier, it's, electricity is produced domestically, so wherever you're using it, it's also being produced there. Um, there's no emissions from an electric vehicle, of course. Um, so, I mean, there's just there's a ton of benefits to using electric motors. Um, efficiency and I think domestic fuel production are some of the largest though. Right. Okay. Um, now, one of the other things that the Ollie is, aside from its electric powertrain, is going to be sort of revolutionizing is, is autonomous driving, um, mm-hmm. especially with the, the addition of the Watson and sort of creating a vehicle that you can communicate with that um, has, has a lot of other benefits aside from simply uh, transporting people to places. Now, with that, I personally think that there's, uh, it's, it's a really positive sign to a rapid transition towards vehicles like the Ollie. Um, and one of the things that I think a devil's advocate would point out is there's very little manufacturing in place to sustain a rapid transition for a bunch of vehicles like the Ollie. So can you talk a little bit about the global manufacturing of, uh, you know, a a rapid transition towards electric vehicles, be it like the Ollie or be it uh, personally owned? Yeah. Um, So I think there are some, there's some skepticism definitely about the ability to retool and revamp factories for for mass production. Um, lately, there's a lot of talk about Tesla being able to produce their 300,000-plus Model 3 pre-orders on time. Um, and so we'll, I guess we'll see how that plays out. But I think that there's definitely a concern. But the other part of it is if there is a real demand for it, these companies will figure it out. Um, the OEMs, they, they're not exactly known for pivoting and changing business models. What they do, they do well, and it's pretty embedded. But they've been working on, auto, on automation for years. Level 2 driving isn't new. There's been park assist and things like that for a long time. They've all invested in um, electric vehicle infrastructure. Um, and you're seeing more and more investment in tech companies constantly with GEM's investment in Lyft, Toyota investing in Uber, um, 
Volkswagen has invested in a in a company um, from Israel called Get. So all of these guys know it's coming and happening, and everyone's trying to prepare. And then now you have tech companies trying to prepare. So I think the manufacturing capacity is there, um, and I think they'll do it quick if the demand is also there, because that means the money is there. Um, and that's kind of what it comes down to. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I'm not hugely concerned with that. And at Local Motors, we do micro-manufacturing anyway. So our low runs of vehicles can be produced in a local environment. They employ people from that town. Um, we do our best, you know, source responsibly. Um, and so that also is a business model that kind of decentralizes the traditional um, factory, which which means we're, we're shipping goods less far um, and producing, you know, for a use case in a certain city. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that's also a model that will really help uh, speed up the manufacturing process of EVs and AVs in the next, you know, decade or so. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more with a, a lot of what you've said there. Um, now, we're low on time here, so I guess to uh, I, I'll take this time to thank you for uh, talking to us today. Um, and if you have any sort of final thoughts that you'd like to share, then uh, please do. Cool. Well, uh, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I don't know. We're really excited about this Ollie project, and hopefully everyone will be able to see it in some pilot programs near them in the future. We're working on a lot of different stuff right now, so it's pretty exciting. Awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Jonathan. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Our last interview of the episode is with PG&E, who has recently partnered with BMW to try to revolutionize the way that electric vehicles, electric vehicle manufacturers, and utilities can work together to smooth the electricity grid, especially when adopting a significant amount of solar energy. Hello, and welcome to another uh, interview here on Energy Voices. Uh, today, we've got David Almeida, who is the program manager for the iCharge Forward program, uh, a partnership between PG&E and BMW. So firstly, David, um, I mean, welcome. And can you tell our global audience a little bit about um, this program between PG&E and BMW? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. And thanks so much for giving us the opportunity to uh, share our program uh, with your audience. Um, so the, the main focus of this program is to see how the utility can work uh, collaboratively with automakers like BMW to manage the charging of electric vehicles to both support the utility grid um, as well as create a uh, benefit that's passed on to drivers. The idea here is what we want to do is identify a way that we can support the grid while also reducing the total cost of ownership for uh, electric vehicles. The way that we do that is we work with the um, BMW, and BMW acts as an aggregator. Uh, what that means is they uh, basically control the charging 
of their residential customers and modify that charging based on that brings to a close another month's episode of Energy Voices. This month's episode uh, was produced by Daniel Cunningham, and I want to extend a special thank you to Daniel for all of his hard work on planning, crafting, interviewing, and producing this episode. Energy Voices is also produced in partnership with CGSR and CGSD. You can find previous episodes at bit.ly slash energy voices or by searching for energy voices in your favorite streaming or podcasting service. Uh, manage charging to consumers to help lower the cost of electric vehicles. And and that's what what I find most interesting about this program um, from from an electric vehicle ownership perspective is that you're potentially creating a, a new revenue stream for owners of vehicles that would have never existed in the past. Um, can you give us a little bit of information on sort of what the this the, the value expectation is for, for the revenue stream? Um, yeah, so the expectation, well, right now we're really just um, evaluating if there, if we can see a value with uh, um, managed charging of electric vehicles. Um, one of the things that uh, we have uh, explored as an idea in, in theory is if we can um, manage the charging of electric vehicles uh, throughout the day that potentially can act as a grid asset. What I mean by that is it can uh, um, delay charging when the grid is stressed, say where we have a um, high temperatures uh, heat wave which causes um, uh, stress on the grid. We can use this as a mechanism to delay charging um, and reduce demand and thereby allow for um, uh, other customers to use electricity in that demand that we've just reduced. The other side of that is if we can shift charging of electricity to uh, different times throughout the day, say in the middle of day when we have high renewable adoption from solar, um, then we can uh, absorb some of that power and uh, um, more effectively manage the grid. Because in California, what we're seeing is a, a kind of a, a different shift uh, in the traditional demand for electricity uh, um, it, throughout our customer base. What we've t typically seen over the past, you know, basically uh, from uh, 20 to 50 years prior to this, is that we would have an increase in demand as, um, as the day uh, um, starts. So in the, in the beginning of the day, you have lower demand because uh, um, people are sleeping and they're not working. But as people wake up and they go uh, to their job, that demand curve increases. And it, um, it peaks you know, towards around uh, 7 or 8 p.m. and then um, goes down when, uh, when the sun sets, uh, it gets cooler, and people go home from work. What we're seeing in California is a different thing. Um, what's happening is uh, what in the utility industry is called the duck curve. And what that means is, um, in the middle of the day, we're seeing a, a significant increase in the amount of power generation from solar panels. And what that's doing is it essentially pulls down that curve in the middle of the day, creating two spikes uh, throughout our demand curve. So we have an um, early spike when people are going to work and the sun is not at its highest, and then a sharp decrease once the sun uh, um, rises and we get uh, optimal solar output, and then as the sun sets, 
uh, and uh, solar output reduces, we get another spike up there. And that's what's called ramping periods. They're either ramping down because solar generation is uh, increasing or um, ramping up because the solar generation is decreasing. And we, as utilities, need to run our grid effectively and more stably. And these sharp ramping periods cause some challenges to us. So what we're doing with, the, uh, with electric vehicles, and we see a great opportunity, is if we can fill in the belly of that duck in the middle of the day so that we can smooth out that line by telling people, hey, it's a great time for you to charge, as well as kind of reduce the ramping periods by shifting charging uh, um, uh, in uh, the early evening uh, to accommodate for that. So this pilot is really trying to test to see what that, um, what that value is and if we can move that around. Um, traditionally, what we've done is we've looked at this and, and seen a, a valuation of you know, what's the avoided cost of generation or the avoided cost to, to, create, uh, to supply that power. We're kind of shifting that paradigm because we've got this new uh, change within our energy demand. And, um, before we really assign a, a dollar value to it, we need to understand if uh, electric vehicles can provide the type of services that I just mentioned. Sort of leads us into the next question that I wanted to talk about, which is how a transition towards a primarily electric vehicle uh, market would affect the generation system of a state like California or, or really any electricity market, um, given that electric vehicles uh, could, it, it could be, are, are going to raise the household demand potentially by double um, in certain places. So how, how is that going to affect our, uh, our generation capacities? Um, yeah, well, let me speak uh, uh, to California um, because that's really the, the market that I work and live in. Um, we have, we're seeing a lot of uh, interesting changes uh, happening within California. We've, got, um, we've had ambitious renewable portfolio um, standard goals. So going from a 30% of our power mix being renewable, uh, made renewables. Uh, recently, our uh, governor and legislature has passed a bill called SB uh, 350, which essentially uh, make, marks ambitious goals for both energy efficiency, transportation, and uh, um, renewable energy, shifting that uh, RPS, or the Renewable Portfolio Standard, up to 50%. Um, that's a significant amount. Uh, so what that's going to do is that's going to increase it's a, uh, the amount of intermittent resources uh, in, in the form of more solar, more wind, um, and other renewables uh, to our apartment. And what we'll see is more of uh, a, a need to find resources that are dispatchable, meaning that um, uh, load that can be shifted throughout the day. And I think the, the use of electric vehicles to um, uh, to help support that is going to be critical. It's not going to be the only thing. We're going to need to look, um, uh, and we are, uh, holistically at all of the demand side resources and identifying ways that we can really uh, efficiently run our system um, by leveraging those resources, not just adding more generation. So that's looking at um, demand response uh, at, at our 
commercial industrial customers to see what sort of programs can we create to also modify some of that um, their consumption to follow the uh, the changing grid uh, needs. Um, we've also we also just announced that the closure of the Diablo Canyon nuclear power facility, um, and what that means is we're we're removing a significant amount of baseload power. So we are uh, going to be more reliant on uh, looking at renewables as well as uh, strategies like electric vehicles to fill this in. I don't see electric vehicles as being a um, as being so much a challenge as being more of an opportunity because of the fact that they are increasing load but beneficial load, meaning that that load can shift throughout the day. That's incredibly useful as the um, grid changes and can be used to both uh, you know, consume when we need um, consumption to kind of level out that demand curve um, as well as uh, to shift or delay their consumption uh, to, to uh, stave off some of those um, steep ramping periods. What were the big challenge for us is how do we do that but also still um, realize that these are first and foremost cars for people. They're our main transportation means. So developing programs or developing tools to help maximize the um, impact on the grid or the, uh, the benefits of the grid while also maintaining uh, driver preferences are going to be critical. We're starting to do that right now with the um, extensive consumer research. Part of the BMW pilot that we've got right now or the iCharge forward pilot is um, looking at uh, extensive consumer research behavior to understand all right, well, when are people charging at home, when are they charging outside the home, and what would we need to um, provide to them, what sort of assurances, what sort of incentives do we need to provide to help move that charging throughout the day. And this is kind of the early steps where we're going to um, learn about what's needed for these uh, um, customers before we kind of move on to um, developing more full-scale utility programs. The other thing that we're doing is really uh, looking at the workplace side of this, and I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, you know, the current pilot with BMW is really only looking at the residential side, but we've identified that there is there's a big need uh, for additional workplace charging, as well as uh, um, a benefit to help support the grid during the middle of the day. So what we've got right now is a proposal with our regulator, the California Public Utilities Commission, to install uh, about 7,500 plugs across our service territory. And one of the key markets that we're looking at is workplaces. And uh, um, realizing that before we can even develop a program that's going to uh, um, harness or manage the charging at workplaces, we need to get charging there and places for them to plug in. Well, and mm -hmm. with that, David, uh, I would like to thank you for uh, coming on and chatting with us today. Uh, the project that uh, you're working on with PG&E and BMW is sounds incredible, and I, I wish you all the best moving forwards. Great. Well, thanks so much for having us, and we're um, we're happy to come back whenever you need us. Great. Thank you.